Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace. I thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you that you have given us your word, which we know is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, which we know builds our faith, which we know, Father, bears fruit in our lives and in our community, and which you have given us the privilege to study and the command to be faithful, to understand and walk in what your word teaches us. I pray, Father, as we seek you this morning in your word, that you would guide us, that your spirit would be our teacher, that your voice would be the one that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we covered the topic of ministry. As we looked at Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the gospel, we looked at how ministry is never to be done alone, and the topic of women in ministry, that was fun. If you missed it, it's on our website. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the most important parable in the Bible. Now, I know that's a pretty bold statement, and I'm going to explain why I make that statement in just a little bit, but I do believe wholeheartedly that the parable of the sower is the most important parable in scripture. So let's read our text for today, which is Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15, and then we're going to have a fun little uh, rabbit trail, and I say little because it's not little at all, we're going to have a nice rabbit trail, and then we'll actually get into the parable. And when a great multitude had gathered... And they had come to him from every city. He spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold, When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, why is this the most important parable in the Bible? Well, we get that from Mark chapter 4, verse 13. In Mark chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus said... Concerning the parable of the sower, do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? This is why it's the most important parable in the Bible. By Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower, we are then able to accurately interpret every other parable that Jesus told. That's really important. So what we're going to do, the rabbit trail we're going to go down, we're going to talk about interpretation. Biblical interpretation. And some people may say, well, why do I need to worry about that? Isn't that your job? Well, yes, it is my job. But according to 2 Timothy 2.15, it's all of our jobs. We are told that each of us is to show ourselves a workman who need not be approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. We are to study the word of God and we are to understand how to properly interpret it. It doesn't matter if you've been to seminary. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter, right? I was talking in Sunday school. You're right. There's people, they call themselves biblical scholars. Uh, I don't exactly know what that means. It just means they argue over stuff I think that's dumb and pointless. Um, we were studying the book of Ezekiel and talking about angels this morning. and We were bringing up some weird questions like, well, their legs are straight, right? Their legs in Ezekiel 1 are described as straight. Well, does that mean they don't have knees? Who cares, <laughs> right? That is just so not important. But hey, we talked about it. Um, and that's what, that's what scholars do. They argue about stuff like that. Uh, but all of us, as followers of Christ, should be able to rightly understand and interpret Scripture. Don't leave it up to me. Why? I'm a human, if you didn't know, which means I'm capable of mistakes, but we all need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, where they heard the word of God with all joy. They received the word of God with all joy. Then they went and searched the scriptures to find out if these things were so. You should come here every Sunday or wherever it is you go to church. If you don't come here, go to church, hear the word of God, receive it, be ready, have a heart that's open, ears to hear. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then go home and open it for yourself and make sure I'm right or whoever it is you're listening to, go home and make sure you're right. Because if you don't, if you are not well-versed in this book, you can very easily be led astray. Now, my goal is to never lead you astray, and hopefully I don't. And if I ever do, you know, feel free to fire me, because I want to teach the Word of God faithfully, and I want to teach the accurate interpretation of God's Word. Doesn't mean I'm incapable of mistakes, but some people are out there and they are trying to lead people astray on purpose. They are trying to deceive people on purpose. And they are trying to use poor interpretations of the Bible to manipulate people on purpose. And that, well, it's sad. It's sad. So that's why we all need to understand one of my favorite words in the Bible, or not in the Bible, but my favorite words in theological study. And that's the word hermeneutics. Spell it three times, right? No, it's, it's already spelled up there. And just so you know, even though I've taken multiple classes on hermeneutics, and I even taught a class on hermeneutics, I had to look it up and make sure I spelled it right. Hermeneutics, very simply, is the discipline or science of interpretation. While it can apply to interpreting any text, the principles of hermeneutics apply very specifically to the Bible. Now, there are two ways to interpret any given passage of the Bible, and then there are... 10 principles that guide the science of hermeneutics. There are other principles behind the 10. We're going to discuss one of them. 
but we're going to do this as quickly as I possibly can, okay? Because I have it written down for you. I encourage you to take time to look over it later on. But this is why, this, this is all going to make sense, I promise. So two basic ways of interpreting scripture. The first is eisegesis. The second is exegesis. And it's not spelled how you think it would be. Eisegesis is reading into the text something that's not there. Right? Reading into the text something that is not there. This is often used to spiritualize a text or to take a text that is meant to be interpreted literally in a metaphorical or figurative sense. There's a lot of examples of this throughout Scripture. One of my favorite ways is what people do to the book of Genesis. I love the book of Genesis. It is one of my favorite books to read. It's one of my favorite books to teach. I've had the privilege, I'm trying to go through this quickly, and I'm going to start stumbling. I've had the privilege of teaching that book several times. But what you see a lot of people do is they go back to the book of Genesis and they start reading into it. They'll go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Beautiful statement, right? And as he goes throughout the days of creation, there was morning and evening the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, resting on the seventh. And what did he create? Well, he created everything. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created the firmament and the water above the firmament and the water below the firmament. And he created all the creatures in the ocean and all the creatures on the land. And he separated the land from the ocean and on and on and on. But every time it says morning and evening, this day. Now the word there in Genesis for day is the word Yom, Y-O-M. Think Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Now the day Yom in Hebrew always means a 24-hour literal day. It always means that throughout Scripture. We're going to talk about why that's important. Because if every time the day Yom is used in the Old Testament, it means a 24-hour day, then people go back to the book of Genesis and they go, yeah, but the word day there doesn't really mean day. Why not? Well, what it really means is a period of time. No, it doesn't. You want to know how I know that? Because every time that the day Yom is used throughout the entire Old Testament, it always means a 24-hour day. So why would it be different in Genesis? Well, really, and when God said, you know, it said that he created all the animals, really what he did is he set evolution in motion. I've read the book of Genesis many times. I've read chapter one a lot. Do you know that there's nothing in there that says God set creation in motion? There's nothing in there that said God started it off and left it on its own. It said he created very specifically what he created. But people love to eisegete that text. They love to go back there and they love to put things in there that aren't there. Now, some people may say, well, but, you know, do you you have to believe in creation six literal days to be saved? No, because the Bible very clearly says we're saved by grace through faith. And that is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is about what Jesus has done for us. But I'll tell you this, if you don't believe the first few verses or the first chapter of the Bible, well, the rest of it gets really hard. Because if God created the heavens and the earth, then flooding the earth wouldn't be a problem. 
Since God created the heavens and the earth, raising the dead isn't difficult for him. Making the sun stand still isn't hard. Right? None of that's a problem when the first verse of the Bible is true. If you don't believe the first verse of the Bible, everything that comes after it, well, you're going to struggle with. You believe the first verse of the Bible, then everything else makes sense. That's why we don't read into the text. Then there's exegesis. And exegesis is this. We interpret a text literally. And what it means is we directly draw from the text meaning and application. So I don't take a text and then go, well, I want it to mean this, or I want to talk about this. So I'm going to take this text and I'm going to make it mean what I want it to mean. No, the Bible tells me what it means. The Bible tells me how to interpret it. The Bible tells me how to apply it. That's exegesis. And the reason that's so important is it's really hard to get in trouble when you just let God's word tell you what to do. Now, all of us have issues with that at times, right? Am I the only one? Sometimes I know exactly what the Bible tells me to do and I do the opposite because I'm kind of dumb. I like John. He put his hand up like this. Everybody else. I do it all the time, right? I admit it. Y'all know if you didn't know I was a sinner, you do now. If you didn't know you were a sinner, you do now because we are. But it doesn't change that the Bible tells us how to do it right. And he's given us his spirit. But I'm going to start another sermon if I'm not careful. So I always attempt to exegete scripture. I want to take what the text says and pull it out. Now there's ten principles that allow us to do that. Now I have a really good article that talks about these principles at length. If you would like that article, let me know. I'll email it to you. But here's the ten principles and we're going to go through these pretty fast. Literal interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, that is the proper interpretation. We always interpret the Bible literally unless the Bible itself gives us permission to do otherwise. And there's so many examples of that. You know, Jesus told us that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And every time I bring that verse up, I tell you the exact same thing. That verse says what it says. It means what it says. We have no right to say anything else. Because I have heard so many people, well, you don't understand. When he says you have to forgive others, that doesn't mean, no, yes, it does. Or when it says you have to forgive others or he won't forgive you, that doesn't mean God won't forgive you. Yes, it does. It's not for me to change or for you. We take it literally. Context. We always interpret the Bible in the light of context. Context includes the passage, the book, the Testament, and the entire Bible. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Love that verse. Do you know how many people can tell you what that verse means in context? Not as many as you'd hope. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that mean I can be a chicken? No. It's a VeggieTales reference. Right? It doesn't mean you can be a chicken. Um, but when you put that verse in context, what did Paul say? Well, I know how to be abased. And I know how to bound. I know how to have plenty. And I know how to have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is saying there is it doesn't matter what situation I'm in. It doesn't matter if I have a lot or if I have nothing. It doesn't matter if I'm free or if I'm in prison. None of that matters. What matters is that I have Christ. Now, does that passage mean that you can throw 
the winning touchdown with three seconds left on the clock, no timeouts remaining, snowing in the Super Bowl? No, that's not what it means, but that's what everybody wants it to mean. One of my favorite shirts, one of these days I'm actually going to buy it, says I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. That's why we don't take scripture out of context. Number three, scripture interprets scripture. Any interpretation must be in line with the entirety of scripture. Those of you who have been listening to me for a while, you know I always do the same thing. I'll tell you what something means. I'll tell you how it applies and I'll give you a cross-reference to support that. I do it constantly because scripture interprets scripture. And if somebody comes to you and they said, well, you know, I, I think this, or I think this passage means this. And I go, or you go, well, yeah, but this passage says something different. Does that mean they're a contradiction in the Bible? No, it means their interpretation is wrong. If your interpretation contradicts another part of scripture, your interpretation is wrong. The Bible is never wrong. Progressive revelation. Now, I'm going to be very careful with this verse or this phrase. Because in today's world, there are some people who teach that God is still revealing Scripture. Eh, no, he's not. The Bible is complete. Genesis to Revelation, 66 books by 40 authors. It's done. He's not writing a sequel. Right? He has not written a sequel. No matter what anybody says, there is no other book. There's this book. So, those who teach that God is still revealing Scripture are false teachers. But, progressive revelation means this, that the revelation of Scripture proceeded from God over time. He did not give us the whole of Scripture all at once. When Moses sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and wrote down the book of Genesis for us, he didn't write all the way through Revelation, did he? No, between the time of the writing of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books, and the book of Revelation is close to 3,000 years. That's a long time. And so he took time to reveal the whole of Scripture to us. The canon of Scripture was completed as far as writing is concerned by the end of the first century, and it was compiled for us in the way we have it today um, by the fourth century. If I have that wrong, let me know, but I'm pretty sure I'm close. Therefore, when we interpret Scripture, we interpret it from Genesis to Revelation. Because everything builds on itself, which takes us back to principle three, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. One of my favorite examples of that, and I love to tell this story. Years and years and years ago, when my wife and I were very, very young, and we were reading the book of Revelation, uh, and we came across, it's in chapter 12 or 13, when it said, The sun, the moon, and the twelve stars brought forth a child that the dragon tried to eat. Right? And you look at that, and I told my wife, I said, Well, the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars speak of Israel. And she says, How do you know? Uh, somebody told me. Literally, that's, that's how I thought I knew. Somebody told me. She goes, Yeah, but is there any other play? How do we know that? Well, it's beautiful. You go back to the book of Genesis. And 
I know I'm going to get this reference wrong because it's Joseph. But when Joseph has his dream, one of Joseph's dreams is that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. And Jacob does us the favor of interpreting that dream. He looks at his son and he said, will your mother and I and your brothers bow down to you? The sun, the moon, and the 12 stars represent Israel. Not because somebody told me so or because I think so, but because Genesis told us so. So we interpret from Genesis to Revelation. Then we have accommodation. Oh my gosh, we're only on number five. Whew! We have accommodation. We interpret the Bible with the view in mind that the infinite God is communicating to the finite mind. Therefore, there are some things in Scripture that were given to us in a way that we would understand them. We'll go back to our example from Sunday school this morning when we were in Ezekiel chapter 1. We got this description of angels, right? And it was a fun description. They got, they got straight legs with hooves for feet. They got four wings. Two they fly with, two they cover their body with. Then you can go to Isaiah. We went to Isaiah 6 where there's angels that have six wings, but that's another story. They're covered with eyes. They have four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Then there's the wheels, or the rims, or whatever it is your translation of the Bible says. Kind of like John said, he thinks of it as a gyroscope, which I think is a great way to think of it. Is it a gyroscope? We don't know. Right? But we're given that language. Why? Because that way we could understand it. It's just the same way we're given the book of Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, well, the book of Revelation too, but the book of Genesis. Go back to creation. What if God actually tried to tell us what he did and how he did it? Right? We have people today, super wicked smart people that are studying things like theoretical physics. And they're coming up with all these things that are, that, that are a guess. That's why it's theoretical physics. Do you know God actually knows what it is? Not only does he know it, he made it, he created it, he established it, he ordered it. And what man can discover? Well, it's just a glimpse. Right? There are people in the world, you listen to them talk and you're like, huh? They're that smart. To God, they're idiots. Well, most of us are. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If he had actually told us how he did it, I think our brains would start leaking out of our ears. It would just melt us. We have no idea. We couldn't comprehend it. So what does he do? He gives it to us in a way we can understand. In the beginning, I created everything. I created this, that, and the other thing, and this is how long it took. But he doesn't actually get into the actual physics of it because we couldn't take it. Even the smartest physicist in the world couldn't take it. That's accommodation. One interpretation. There is one correct interpretation for every word, sentence, passage, and book of the Bible. There are many applications. That's why you can preach. I could preach through the book of Luke, you know, a dozen times, and it would probably sound fairly different as how we applied it each time. But what it meant would never change. There is one proper interpretation of every word, sentence, passage, and book of the Bible. Many applications, but there is only one correct interpretation that reflects God's original intent. That's why when we talk about theology and we talk about the meaning of Scripture, you can't have one person go, well, we believe this. We understand that you believe that, but we believe this. One of them is wrong. That's all there is to it. One of them is wrong. Because there's only one 
proper interpretation. Now, you can be as egotistical as I am and think that you know what that proper interpretation is every time, but I'm realistic enough to know that that's not true. Like when I talk with folks about eschatology, I love studying eschatology, I love talking about eschatology, the study of end times is a blast to me. When's the rapture going to be? What's going to happen in the millennial kingdom? What's the Antichrist going to look like? Are our clothes really going to be folded when God takes us home? No. I guarantee, I know it's not in the Bible, but I guarantee that's not going to happen. And if I'm wrong, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right? But here's the reality of it. When does it, does it matter when Jesus comes back? Does it matter if it's pre-trib, mid-trib? Does it matter literal millennial reign? Does it, no, what do you want to know matters? He's coming back. That's what matters. I would never argue. I have a dear friend of mine who he and I, we discuss all kinds of stuff. And we've looked at each other. We will never agree on eschatology. And I said, but you know what we agree on? We both are looking for the return of Jesus Christ. So who cares when it happens? So I'm not going to argue over that. But in the end, one of us will be right. Either my view of eschatology is right or his view or somebody else's view. And when we get there, right, when we get to heaven, let's say the rapture happened right now and he doesn't believe in a pre-trib rapture. Let's say it happened right now. And the tribulation started tomorrow. Praise God. When we get there, do you think I'm going to find him and tell him I was right? Thanks, Linda. Uh, you know, when we get there, I'm not going to find him and tell him. I'm not going to look at him and go, neener, neener, neener. I understood Revelation better than you. You know what I'm going to say is, who cares? He's right there. We are now sitting, worshiping, praising God, falling before his throne, having our Savior wrap his arms around us, and we're not going to give a rat's patootie about when it took place. We're just going to be happy that it did, and that because we know Christ as Savior, we were part of it. But in the end, there's only one interpretation, and there you go. The harmony of Scripture. Now, this goes back to building on principles 2, 3, and 4, that there is no part of the Bible that can be interpreted in a way that contradicts another part of the Bible. One of my favorite examples is this, and this goes back to the study of eschatology, because there are a lot of people who will say, well, we need to take the book of Revelation figuratively. Right? We cannot interpret Revelation literally. We have to interpret it figuratively. And I go, okay, what do you do with the book of Daniel? Well, when you're in the book of Daniel, we interpret that literally. Why? Do you know they both talk about the same thing? The book of Daniel is just as much end times prophecy as Revelation is. Just as much. Now, the book of Daniel covers some different things that Revelation doesn't touch on. Revelation covers some different things that Daniel doesn't touch on. But in the end, both books are talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, along with the book of Zechariah. And so you'll meet people, well, you've got to interpret Daniel literally, but you have to interpret Revelation figuratively. You're wrong. Now, if we're to interpret Revelation figuratively, then Daniel has to be figurative. But if we interpret Daniel literally, we have to interpret Revelation literally. That's all there is to it. There's a harmony of scripture. Then there's the genre. We must always take the genre of the book passage into account as we interpreted it because we will interpret historical narrative differently than we'll interpret poetry or the gospels, right? The way we interpret first Kings will be slightly different than the way we interpret the Psalms which will be slightly different than the way we interpret the Gospels. Now, all the other principles still apply. 
But you have to take the genre of what you're reading and talking about into consideration. Then there's the grammatical principle. Now we hold in our hands, hopefully unless somebody has a Bible that's in a different language, we all hold in our hands some English translation of the scriptures. And while many English translations are excellent translations, right? they're fantastic translations of the Bible, they're still translations. And every translation at some point, no matter how good of a translation it is, every translation will involve some level of interpretation. And mostly that's because of the richness of the original languages. The richness of the original languages, you have a word in English. My favorite example of this is always the book, the word love. I, I love you. I love my wife. That's different. I love my wife and I love pickleball. Those are pretty much on par. No, that's different too. I love pie and I love my children. Right? You get the picture. We have one word. We love it. But in Greek, you know, the way I love my wife is usually going to be a combination of agape and eros. Right? Uh, yeah, you, you put those together all by yourself if you want. The way God loves us is pure agape, unconditional love. The way I love you is phileo. Now, the way I love my blood relations is storge. In English, I love them. I love you. I love pie. My daughter made pizzelles last night. I really love pizzelles. But in the end, it breaks down in English. So when they interpret it, they have to take those words, right? And the word might be agape or the word might be phileo, but it's always translated love. So we go back and we look into, we explore the original languages to make sure the interpretation is correct. We did that last week when we talked about the passage where it says women will be saved in childbearing. I'm not going to get into that again, but if you go back and you look at that passage in the original, it doesn't mean that a woman has to give birth to a child to be saved. That's not what it means. It means something else. But you have to go back and listen to last week's sermon to dive into that. Now, historical context. Historical background. We interpret Scripture we have to take into account historical and cultural context in order to have a proper interpretation. We did that a couple weeks ago when Jesus, uh, his, the, the woman, he was having a wow. Take a breath. When Jesus had dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house and the woman came in and got behind him and washed his feet. Well, how do we interpret that historically? We have to understand how they ate. Right? They laid on one side with their feet behind them. That's how she could come up behind him and wash his feet. Well, she was probably a prostitute. She would never be allowed in Simon the Pharisee's house. How did she get in? Quite often, people who were considered important back then would have a meal in an open area so that those who were less important could gather around and listen. They weren't allowed to eat. They weren't allowed to participate, but they could listen to the conversation and hopefully learn from it or something of that idea. I don't think we're going to make it. Anyway, <laughs> Preach on, brother. We're 
All right. Thank you, Tim. I love Tim. Tim will let me preach forever. Um, And so the whole idea, though, is you have to understand those things. Because if you take any portion of Scripture out of any version of its context, whether that's the context of the passage of the book or whether it's the historical context, you can make a mistake when you interpret it. So that leads us to the word consistency. As a result of these principles, we come across something we call hermeneutical or interpretive consistency or interpretive constancy. In other words, this is what it means. When something is interpreted one way in a place of scripture, it will always be interpreted that way. In other words, interpretation is consistent. This gives us another principle of hermeneutics, and that's the principle of first use. If you really want to know how God wants a word used, find the first time he uses it in Scripture. Because when you find the first time he uses uses it in Scripture, and you interpret it correctly in that place, then every other time you see it in Scripture, you interpret it the same way. That's why the word yom is so important in Genesis chapter 1. Because it's used that way there. It's used that way every time it's used. But consistency, it will always be interpreted the same way. Interpretation stays consistent. This is why the parable of the sower is the most important parable. That was a really big circle. Took me a little while to get back to it. I promised you it would go quickly. It only took a half hour. This is why it's the most important parable because it leads to a kind of an offshoot principle of hermeneutical consistency and that is parabolic consistency or parabolic constancy. And what that means is when we interpret something in a parable one way, then we must interpret it that way in every other parable. Therefore, to understand and interpret all the parables, we have to understand this one. And we can do that because Jesus explained this one to us. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, this is what I think it means. And so that's how I think we should interpret the other parables. No, I get to stand up here and tell you, this is what Jesus said it means. And because Jesus said it that way, we interpret everything else as far as parables are concerned, by the standard Jesus gave us. We can also use the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13 to add to parabolic constancy because Jesus explained that one as well. Everybody good? Do we need an intermission? Flash the lights, get a cup of coffee? Good. Verse 4. When a great multitude had gathered, they came to him from every city, And he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing 
they may not understand. I remember the very first time I read the Bible. I don't remember all of it, but I remember this. I remember reading this parable. And I remember agonizing over what it meant. Because I didn't finish reading the passage. I read the parable. And oh man, I'm like, oh, okay, so the seed and the and, and all and I, I just I couldn't wrap my mind around it, and then I read the rest. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's why it's so important. So we're not I'm not going to give you any interpretation yet, because Jesus is going to take care of that for us in a little bit. But he does give us an exhortation and a reason for the parable. So we're going to look at that. First, we're going to look at them out of order a little bit. The exhortation, he who has ears to hear. Let him hear. Put simply, the person who wants to hear God speaking to them needs to listen. The New Living Translation interprets this and and translates it this way. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. A.W. Tozer said, faith comes first to the hearing ear, not to the cogitating mind. Cogitating is a word we all need in our vocabulary more often not to the cogitating mind, right? It's not a matter of IQ. It's not a matter of education. It's humbly preparing your heart to receive God's truth. And those, this is Warren Wiersbe, those who think themselves wise and prudent are blind to the truths that are easy for the humble to understand. A couple scriptures in there, James 1, 19 through 21 and Matthew 11, 20 through 26. But this is not an intellectual exercise because you can have an intellectual knowledge of the Bible and it not change your heart. The heart change comes when you want to hear what God is saying to you, when you want to understand what God is saying to you and when you surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit to make that change happen. You can't do it by yourself. You can't work hard enough. You can't study enough. You can't understand. Now, that doesn't mean you don't study. You still have to be in the word. But if you sit back and go, all right, I'm a pretty smart fella or a pretty smart gal. I got all like old there for an old and southern. Hey, fellas. Hey, ladies. I'm smart enough. I'll understand this on my own. No, you won't. John chapter 14, 15 and 16. Jesus told us very simply, you want to know what this book says? The Holy Spirit has to teach you. And in order for the Holy Spirit to teach you, you have to listen. And in order to listen, You have to humble yourself. Isn't that beautiful? The reason for the parables. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6, 9. And the reason for the parables is that, what? Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. It has always been intended for us as his people to understand his word. He wants us to understand it. His intention has never been for us to be blind to the truth of his word. But to those who have hardened their hearts, to those who refuse to receive God's truth, to those who refuse to humble themselves and listen, Jesus tells them, I'm speaking in parables so you can see it, but you won't really see it. You'll hear it, but you won't really understand it. In 1 Peter 1.12 Peter, talking about the prophets of old, said this, To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you 
through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things with angels desire to look into. Everything in scripture was given to us, even what's revealed by the prophets of old, so it could be reported to us through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know what it means. He doesn't want to hide it from us. Because the more we know his word, the better we know him. Now we get to the actual parable. Verse, well, not the actual parable, but the actual meaning of the parable. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Jesus begins by giving us the meaning of the main element in the parable. The seed is the word of God. Now, every time you see seed in a parable, it has something to do with the word of God. Every single time. And that's not because I think so, because that's what Jesus told us. As we continue through the parable, we will see other aspects interpreted for us. The birds of the air represent the devil. Now, every time you see birds in a parable, it will represent in some way, shape, or form evil. When people get to the parable of the mustard seed, they often misinterpret it because they don't interpret that parable in light of this one. The parable of the mustard says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It planted and it grew into a mighty tree, which is odd because mustard seeds don't grow into mighty trees, do they? They grow into small bushes. And it says, then the birds of the air will come and nest in it. That's the whole parable. So what it means is that the kingdom of God will experience supernatural growth. Right? That seed is planted. Supernatural growth, which we've seen over the last 2,000 years. Billions of people have known Jesus Christ as Savior. Then the birds of the air will come in, which means Satan will do his best to corrupt the kingdom of God. Oh, and people don't like that. Oh, that doesn't mean Satan can't. Satan can't get in the church. Yes, he can. He knows how to use a door. Now, how do we protect ourselves against that? We understand his word so that we're not deceived. So the birds of the air are always going to represent the devil or evil. Those who hear the word of God are soil, specifically their hearts. Thorns represent the cares of the world. Fruit is the outcome of a life that is changed by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. It sounds easy, doesn't it? Because we can now take this and we can interpret other parables knowing what these things represent. But unfortunately, many people wrongly interpret the parables because they refuse to follow the principle of parabolic constancy. Don't be like them. So let's actually study the parable now. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear... The devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. There are a lot of people who hear the word of God. And maybe it's because 
Tim Tebow painted John 3.16 on the eye black under his eyes. Right? The first time he did that, I can't remember the Google searches, but it was like uh, 30 million, 40 million people searched John 3.16 during that game. That's a lot of people who heard the word of God because one man decided to paint it under his eyes. Or however they did. I don't know how you do that, but you know what I mean. Very simple. How many of those 30 million Google searches turned into people who came to Christ as Savior? Probably not that many. Why? Because the devil doesn't like it. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says this, Even if our gospel it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan does not want non-believers to hear the truth of the gospel. And Satan does not want believers to hear the truth of the word of God and live it out to become fruitful. He doesn't like it. So we should all agree together to make Satan angry and do what the word says. What's he going to do about it? We've already won. He, he, can, he can bark and he can make noise and he can throw things and he can be annoying. But we've already won. Victory is ours in the resurrection of Christ. But his goal is always going to be to try to either keep a non-believer from hearing and getting saved or keeping a believer from hearing and being fruitful. And that continues on. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Have you ever met these people? I have met these people. I have led, at least I thought I had, led these people to Christ. Where I will meet with somebody. They're going through something difficult. I share the gospel with them. And they're like, yeah, that's what I need. I need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I need to be saved. I, I need help. Great. You pray with that person and six months go by and you find out they're, they're living with their girlfriend or they're, they went back to drinking or they're doing drugs or they're whatever. But what happened? Well, you know... I tried that Christianity thing. It just didn't work for me. That is like one of the dumbest statements in the English language. You don't try the Christianity thing. Either Jesus gets a hold of your heart and saves you, or he didn't. And maybe it looked good on the outside, but as soon as something happens, they fall away. And it happens far too often. Now, I don't believe that person was ever really saved. They put a show on. But Hebrews 10 36 through 39 tells us you need endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back that word in Greek, there is the word apostasy. It means to fall away or to abandon your faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's God speaking. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Because there are those who will claim to believe, and as soon as something difficult happens, whether it's a temptation to sin or a difficult situation in life, they fall back. And that's not what God wants for us. The third aspect, now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches and pleasures of life, 
and bring no fruit to maturity. The word for fruit, or sorry, the word for maturity there means to be complete or perfect. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Right here, you have the word of God. Somebody hears the word of God. They respond to the word of God, but then they are choked with the cares, riches, or pleasures of life, and they never come to maturity. One of the best illustrations I have ever heard of this in my entire life is given to us by C.S. Lewis in the book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I highly recommend it. Incredible book. But the whole book is based on um, a demon named Screwtape, who is mentoring his nephew. Now, demons don't have nephews, but still, he's mentoring his nephew, a demon by the name of Wormwood. And there comes a point that his nephew is assigned a specific person, and his job is to make sure that person goes to hell. And he's doing a really good job, and then one of the letters he writes to his uncle, the worst possible thing has happened. He went to church, and he found Jesus Christ. Right? And so he's panicked. Like, I failed to do my job. And his uncle Screwtape writes back and says, All is not lost. This is what you do. Fine. Let him go to church. Even let him read his Bible. That's okay. But keep him distracted. Distract him with the cares of the world. Distract him with making money. Distract him with the pleasures of life, right? You do that, yeah, maybe he said the words, but he'll never be fruitful. That was Screwtape's advice. How many people do we see? And I don't, I don't think this happens in every culture, but I think it happens in the Western culture a lot. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I put a check in the plate, right? I read my Bible. I listen to my, my K-Love on the radio, I don't know about you guys. I hate K-Love. I think their mission is fantastic, but I can't stand listening. They play the same four songs over and over again. Um, but, have all, right? Let them, let them look good on the outside. Just make sure they're not fruitful. And we see it all the time. All the time. There's been seasons in my life where I've been that way. I said the right things. I was doing the right things. I looked good. But on the inside, I was falling apart. We see it all the time. Think of a person who is struggling with cancer. Now, sometimes it's obvious. Maybe their treatment will cause them to lose their hair or something like that. But if you sit two people next to each other and one is maybe dying of stage four liver cancer and the other one's healthy as could be, just looking at them isn't going to tell that for most people, is it? You look here, you look at me, do you know that I'm doing well spiritually or not? Anybody? John, don't answer. John knows more than most of you. But um, I've been struggling with a few things lately, but that's another story. Right? You wouldn't know. I seem like I'm doing okay. I've got a smile on my face. i got my beard growing back in after a time where I didn't have it, which was frightening and scary for all. Um, 
But you don't know. You wouldn't know unless I told you. It's so easy to look good on the outside when the cares and riches and pleasures of life are keeping us from maturity. That's why Jesus tells us this, to warn us. Matthew 6, 31 through 34 says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Worrying about tomorrow will stop us from being fruitful today. It's that simple. Now, knowing that, how many of you immediately are going to stop worrying about everything? Right? There's three of us who lied in church. Um, because we know better. We're probably going to worry about something. But we don't have to. And if we get obsessed with worry, oh, it chokes our fruitfulness. Number four. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The word noble means to be valuable or virtuous. The word good means beneficial or well. The difference between noble and good here is beautiful. Remember the grammatical principle of interpretation? You have to go into the Greek to find this out. Good refers to an intrinsic goodness, what's inside of us. While noble speaks of living out the good that's inside of us. So they're two different things. Oh, a noble and good heart. Everybody wants a noble and good heart. Well, you have to take what's inside and you have to let it out. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, the only good inside of us comes from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When we come to know Christ, he clothes us in his righteousness. He gives us a new heart. That's good. Noble is letting it out. Take what is inside of you by the Holy Spirit working in and through you by the truth of his word and then live it out. It's a really fancy way of taking what James told us in chapter 1 verse 22 to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It is the only way that we can be fruitful doers of the word. We abide in Christ, and we do what he says. Now, for sake of time, whoo, <laughs> for sake of time, because I love you all, and I'm getting hungry, um, I'm not going to have you turn to John 15, but it's your homework this week. Go read John 15, 1 through 11, and here's what it says. Abide in Christ. You abide in Christ, because apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And we abide in him, and as we abide in him, and his word abides in us, we will bear much fruit. That's what that passage says, and it says it in great detail. How do we abide in Christ? Every aspect of our lives, we live in an awareness of his presence and with a desire to bring him glory. That's abiding in Christ. The word abide is where we get our word about. It means to live in. You live in your house. What do you do in your house? Well, you eat there and you sleep there and you shower there and you play games with your family and you watch TV and you get angry at the dog for pooping on the floor, right? You do everything 
in your house. So to abide in Christ is to do everything in Christ. And as you abide in him and his word abides in you, you will be fruitful. There's your homework. Let's close. I close. Now, I don't want you to be deceived. Doesn't that look like a really short conclusion? You have no idea how many more notes I have. Um, I close just about all of our messages with a few questions to really help us apply what we studied and take it home. Today, there's only one question that each of us really needs to answer for ourselves. And that question is, what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Have you heard the word of the gospel and the devil has stolen it away from you? Maybe you don't see it that way. But you have, if you've ever heard the gospel, and I don't care if you're here or if you're online or if you listen to this recording later, if you've ever heard the gospel and not come to Jesus for salvation, or if you've ever heard God speak to you from his word and you have not obeyed it, it is the devil who is working to keep you from listening to his word. Oh, and we don't like that. Do oh, I don't like it. Right? I'm not trying to be facetious or sarcastic. I don't like that idea. I want to pretend that if I hear the word of God and I don't listen to it, it's just because it wasn't the right time or I didn't have the right opportunity or whatever. I don't ever want to think, well, that the devil's at work in my life in some way trying to keep me away from being obedient to his word. And in all honesty, it's probably not the devil. I don't think I'm important enough to actually get his attention, but it's one of the little jerks that works for him. Always one of them trying to keep me or you from obeying the word of God. And maybe if you're not a believer, it's because you've never received Christ as Savior. Or maybe as a believer, it's because God has told you to do something and you just haven't done it. But that's because Satan doesn't want us to be fruitful. Now, we don't get to blame him for anything. If you sin, you don't get to say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You made a bad choice. But he will do anything to keep us away from God's word. Anything. As a non-believer, that's to keep someone away from hearing the gospel and being saved. As a believer, that's to keep us away from being obedient to the word. So, what do we do? We listen. And we respond. We humble ourselves and understand that we need to hear his word. And by his grace and the strength of his spirit, respond to it. The second one, have you heard the word and at some time a temptation that led to sin or a difficult situation in life has caused you to fall away from it? It happens far too often. And if that's the case for anybody listening, it takes one step to get back. There are many steps that can lead you away from your relationship with Christ. Even if you don't lose your salvation, because that's another issue, but you're just not close to him or you're just not walking with him. It can take many steps to take you down the wrong path. It only takes one step to get you back on the right one. And that's repentance. Just, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to come back. And he's there like the father of the prodigal son, arms wide open, waiting for you to come home. Have you heard the word, number three, but there's no fruitfulness in your life? And this would be because the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, or the pleasures that you would rather pursue have choked out that fruitfulness. It's just like number two, one step. Take one step back. 
And you don't even have to do it by yourself. The Holy Spirit will help you, will help you, one step. And then there's number four. Have you heard the word, surrendered your life to Christ, and then by his grace and power, the Holy Spirit's work in you, taken what Jesus has put in your heart, and now you live it out in a fruitful way. Now, I say that because I want this to be all of us. I want it to be me. I want to be this good soil. I want to be fruitful. God wants me to be this kind of soil. He wants me to be fruitful. And you know, there's going to be times we struggle. I put the word waffle in here. I don't know why we use the word waffle as going back and forth. Because when you cook a waffle iron, it just cooks the whole waffle, top and bottom at the same time. I don't want a pancake. I don't want a hamburger. I don't want to flip over one side and the other. But we do it, don't we? And I'm not here to put anybody down because I do it too. Right? You all think, oh, you're a pastor. You wake up every day and the first thing you do is fall on your knees and pray for six hours. And then you fast for 18 more. And you spend 14 hours a day on your sermon. And you spend eight hours a day ministering to other people and 12 hours a day sharing the gospel in the community. Do the math on that. It doesn't work. I do get up every day and pray. Usually the first thing I think when I get up is, man, my back hurts. <laughs> or something. Or I, oh, I really have to pee. Right? Usually the first thought in my mind is not something super spiritual. I get there at some point in the day eventually, hopefully. But right, we go back and forth. We're not perfect. But ultimately, this is what God wants us to be. He, he's given us his word and he has filled us with his spirit and he has demonstrated us demonstrated to us his love all because he wants to do an amazing work in each of our lives and if you want that too if you want God to do that work in your life then you have to hear what he's saying to you when I go back to the New Living Translation of that statement. Anyone who has ears, let him hear. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Father, for your great and incredible love. Thank you that you have given us your word so that we can hear it. Thank you that you have given us your spirit who can help teach us so we can understand it. And I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, myself so very much, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, we want to know you. We want to understand your word. We want to understand your will for our lives. And we want to walk it out by your grace and your strength. And we can't unless we abide in you. And so, Father, I pray for your help. You know our weaknesses. You know our failures, but you've also unveiled to us your all-sufficient grace. Help us, Father. We need you. Help us to walk with you. Help us to follow you. Help us to glorify you. Help us to be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.